Hello and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast, the podcast for anyone interested in the business of storing and moving temperature-controlled goods in the UK. I'm Shane Brennan and I'm the Chief Executive of the UK Cold Chain Federation. In this podcast, I talk to the readers, regulators and advisors that shape the industry that I represent. If you like our content, please don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. We continue to live in the strangest of times. As we speak, England has just taken the latest major step out of coronavirus lockdown. I'm not sure I can really believe I'm saying this, but it's quite pleasing and reassuring to see queues outside Primark. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad I'm not actually in them, but the sight of this general cautious reopening of the high street is a sign of better economic days to come. Big question marks remain over when we're going to see the return of hospitality and food service businesses, that critical thing for the future of the cold chain. But we have cause to be optimistic, not just about the fact that the economy is opening back up, but also that that economy might come back hopefully stronger than some of the worst, most pessimistic predictions. One business that's definitely struck an optimistic tone is the one led by my guest today. John Miles is the country director for one of our youngest and most disruptive, in a good way, cold chain businesses, New Cold. Since they opened their doors on the first high bay automated facility at Wakefield in 2015, they have been the focus of much attention, not least appearances on BBC News and The One Show. New Cold are a global business in a hurry, with fast-paced expansion and a hunger for innovation. That confidence extends to the UK and doesn't seem to be knocked off course by COVID-19. It's almost as if we plan these things. But John and the team have just announced formal plans to develop and open a second cold store in the UK. The Corby facility is on course to open as early as the end of next year. A big piece of good news at a time of such uncertainty. Hello, John. Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm good, thank you. John, can I ask you to start by telling us a little bit more about New Cold as a business? Yeah, so uh, New Cold was founded in 2012 um, by Bram Harger, our founder and CEO, uh, and they quickly purchased a warehouse in France, uh, which was automated, and built the first New Cold automated warehouse in Germany, in Rheiner, a year later. Uh, 2015 saw Wakefield in the UK open along with Kutno in Poland. Um, uh, we went into Australia in 2017 uh, and opened two sites in Melbourne. Uh, 2018 saw our first US site uh, in Tacoma, Washington State, and a year later we opened in Burley in Idaho. Um, so that's our footprint now. Uh, we currently have a construction underway uh, in Rennes in France. Um, in 2018, we extended our Wakefield facility uh, from a 55,000 pallet store to a 143 pallet store. Uh, and as you've just said, Shane, we're uh, now looking for a second site uh, in Corby and have submitted planning. Thanks, John. One of the things I'm fascinated by is you obviously operate and run the UK business you're part of a global company. How does that actually work in practice? Do you actually genuinely think globally as a business? Does things happening in other parts of the world genuinely affect what you're doing day to day here? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think logistics in the end is very similar. There are some, there are some things that are different. Um, if I look at the European and the Australian and the US market, pallet sizes are different, for example. Um, so I, I think we have to take that specification in at a local level, uh, but I think the philosophy that we want a as small a cube as we can make because it's the most energy efficient, 
um, and to store as many pallets in the smallest space, uh, and then use that with advanced cooling and building technology these days to make the most efficient warehouse, and then inside uh, use the projects that we work with with our customers and in the local market to understand what design we need, what the software needs to do to pick up market trends. So I guess in summary, I would say there's an overarching logistic strategy. Um, and then inside those warehouses and those countries and those continents, uh, there's a smaller project uh, to get it right for the local market. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, can I just bring it back actually a step to the how your business is coping right now with the coronavirus outbreak? Yeah, look, Shane, I think it's, it's certainly been really interesting. Um, it didn't feel interesting in the first few weeks. It felt like absolute chaos, um, but it's been interesting. I think from our perspective, uh, I, I want to be clear that we've been affected a lot less than a lot of other businesses in our industry. So in general, our total cost customer base in Wakefield produces and sells more for retail than it does for the hospitality industry and sector. So uh, the disruption in the hospitality sector had some impact, but nowhere near as much in other businesses. And what we saw from the retail sales was a huge increase in those staple products and some other products. Um, which didn't quite counteract the work that we would have done in the hospitality sector, but made some steps towards it. So from an overall business perspective, <clears throat> that was how it was for us. Um, in the end, we furloughed less than 5% of our staff. Um, and as, as we now see the last week or so, hospitality starting to pick up. Uh, we're looking at are there ways that we can get those back into the business um, uh, I know from speaking to some of the other members in the Federation, we've all taken some action to protect our workforce uh, in the best way that we can. And in hindsight, the only thing I wish I'd done differently uh, was probably buy some shares in a Perspex company just before COVID broke. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, we, we, have now got, we have now got a lot more Perspex on site than we ever had before. <laughs> so barriers between desks, between people at workstations, uh, on the shop floor, even between certain people working. So, um, yeah, but it, it's been challenging. Uh, and touch wood, unfortunately, uh, we've also had no confirmed cases. So that, that's been really good that the team have been able to stay healthy. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Really important to remember that that is the most important thing about this crisis, keeping our people safe. Indeed. I know it's been a plan of yours for some time to expand to build a new facility um, to match your one in Wakefield somewhere further down south. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty big vote of confidence in the market to be pressing ahead with that even at this time. What's the uh, rationale behind that? I, I think, Shane, we, we've seen, those of us in the industry or close to the industry have seen over the last few years uh, the demand for frozen space increase and the amount of frozen space available uh, either not increase or even reduce. So uh, we know there are three PLs that have closed facilities in the last two to three years. Uh, I certainly know of some manufacturers that had their own cold storage that have now got it in the market in the three PLs. Um, so I think, and it looks like 
um, everything we see that the frozen market is going to continue to grow. And I interestingly read an article yesterday, uh, and I can't remember if it was the first time ever, but the first time in a long period of time, uh, that frozen fish outsold fresh fish. Um, um, so I, I just think that the market in general is strong. Um, the, the requirement for 3PL seems to be increasing. Um, and you, you talked earlier about how things are differently across the globe. I think we see the same thing as a company across the globe. Uh, the, the interest in frozen food continues to increase. Um, the, the requirement for frozen food continues to increase. So, um, yeah, we're, we're confident that, that we're in a good, strong market um, and that demand's going to continue. I guess the other thing that makes you stand out is the high level of automation in your facilities and your commitment to automation as a business. Do you yeah. agree that you're very much leading the way and that other businesses should be following in where you're going? Yeah, I, I think that Brom, our founder, has been, uh, has been in favour of automation from the start. Uh, yeah, Brom's first dalliance in automation came nearly 20 years ago in automated cold warehousing. So I think uh, it's about those repeatable processes, those regularly repeatable processes, the things that you see happen in the warehouse over and over again. Um, they're the things that we look to automate. Um, they're the things that provide the biggest value. Um, and I think um, the things that we develop as we've gone on, what we've really developed is the software behind how that automation works. Uh, and that's where you bring the biggest value. I don't want to overstate the point, but I think some businesses in the cold chain have actually been quite resistant to embracing automation over the previous years. Do you sense that's changing? There are some reasons now why uh, we've always been interested in automation, but why others are now looking at it. So I think there is there are recurring things in the continents where we are. So I, I can speak for Australia and the US and the U and Europe um, and the UK um, and uh, some recurring things through those. So I think in the last yeah ten years, let's say certainly five years plus, there is capital is accessible. Um, so getting capital to invest is easier than at other times in history. Um, I think we see the minimum wave, wage driving up pay rates um, and sourcing quality people is getting harder. So I'm talking pre-COVID now, so we're not really sure what it's gonna look like when we come out the other side, but good quality labor was getting more difficult to source, um, harder to get. Um, and I think we also see what's changed probably is customers more prepared to invest in a long-term supply chain solution with their logistics provider rather than the historic two to three years uh, that they might have been in before. And I think there's a big focus on sustainability right now uh, and automation enables you to build a smaller cube for the same amount of pallets. Um, in general, we estimate we use 50% less energy than the same amount of pallet space in a traditional cold store. Um, and food safety is on the increase. Uh, and the other thing that automation brings you is less contact between people and product. Um, 
the we have a separate area where the product is stored that no people go in um so i think these are the reasons that we are looking at automation i think if you now look across uh the cold chain in general there are now two mega players let's say in the cold marketplace in lineage and americold or lineage apologies to my uh friends at lineage so, yeah, at Lineage in Americold, and those guys, their most recent projects, they're now looking to invest in the automation. So I, I think it is the future. Um, uh, in the, I remember going back five or ten years discussing automation with potential customers who were nervous about what happened when it didn't work and how, what was the contingency plan and what did we do. Those, those nerves seem to have been allayed a little bit. And actually, it was really strange for me because you were speaking to people who had a totally automated production facility with as few people as they could get in it. Um, and the logic is the same. Uh, so, so yeah, so I think automation, I'd say Brum, uh, as our founder, has been always been a big advocate. And I do think uh, it is the future. It's the next evolution. And for people that say it isn't, I, I can only say, at some point in the past, there were people that said they didn't want a car, they'd rather stick to their horse because it was more reliable. <laughs> there are some, definitely some, lots of things to take out of that. The first thing you really said that struck me was the relationship between the robotics element of automation and the software side. And I can see how the integration of those things can be the key to success. How yep. do you handle that? kind of interface with customers do you achieve quite a lot of collaboration or is there quite a lot of resistance no 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 we, we, we it's a big part of our our, our big projects 100 percent but also when we as we bring other customers on board um not all of our customers have 10 or 15 year contracts with us we have some two and three and even one year contracts with people um, but a big part of that process is to discuss with them before we start how much of the process can we automate? Uh, how much can we make that what you do on your system automatically communicates with our system, uh, normally via EDI, but how can we make that work? How can we make it so that if you block a pallet in your system, it automatically gets blocked in ours? Um, if you send an order from your system, we automatically receive it in ours. So wherever possible, we invest in that uh, and try and help our customers invest in it if necessary uh, because uh, it mitigates the risk of mistypes, people doing things wrong. Having to, do, having to duplicate work on two systems inevitably means there's twice as much chance of getting something wrong than if you only do it in one. So... But I guess you can mine the data to find efficiencies as well. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And that is something we work really hard on. Uh, Because we're an automated warehouse, we work really hard on uh, what we call master data. So some people call tie highs. So it's all about the pallet build. How high is it? How heavy is it? What does it look like? Is it a euro? Is it a chip? Um, And we use all of that to also get the best storage configuration in our warehouse. So we use that data to put the pallet away when it arrives at the warehouse. And that that element particularly, uh, I call it high bay intelligence. So the intelligence that's in the software in our warehouse is what develops the most 
over a period of time because as you roll from one project to another you learn a little bit you do something a little bit differently um, and we have our own sister software company um, so we get we have some quite good constructive sessions about how we can improve uh, and that is one thing I would say with a new code has moved on tremendously in the last three or four years um, how we can better fill our warehouse uh, get better flow on the product um, yeah that's really important yeah and the other thing that comes through in what you're saying and the thing that you're pretty famous for as a business is having those really long-term partnerships in place with your yeah. key customers and you've already alluded to it but it does seem that there are customers in our marketplace that are more open to that more long-term collaboration and investing in their supply chain even if it is with a 3pl partner rather than what we think of the history of our market which is um i'll take it from the market on spec and to the extent i have a supply chain strategy at all it will be to secure the cheapest possible price for my short-term need yeah i think i think that's fair shane and um i think like i say across the world and i remember speaking to somebody in the in australia um a couple of years ago about exactly this topic and uh the feedback was one of the reasons that people are now in Australia anyway were more engaged in the prospect of a longer term contract was they could see the way that the market was progressing there was a risk they might get to a point where they didn't have anywhere to move next um, so that their buying their purchasing of logistics decision might get taken out of their hands if the frozen market continued to grow and if space became short there became a shortage of space so some of it is also about securing their supply chain for the future i think the other thing in the long-term contract um that i do genuinely uh believe is a benefit is the ability to genuinely look at continuous improvement projects to genuinely look at long-term partnership improvements in the supply chain uh, and from previous previous lives um, it, it you don't always get that when you're in two to three year contracts um, because you, you sign a two-year contract six months to settle down six months before you finish the your customer's going to be going to tender again so there's a year period in between where both parties end up looking at it thinking, yeah, it's not really worth it for a year. <laughs> so I think the, the collaborative approach, the partnership approach, um, which stems from the long-term contract, it can be there without, but stems from that long-term contract, can actually bring genuine uh, supply chain improvement. And that segues nicely into what I think is the third point that I draw out from what you said originally, which is the importance of sustainability. And I guess one way of conceiving of the idea of continuous improvement is to think about it in terms of the sustainability benefits, whether that's uh, reduced energy consumption, reduced carbon emissions that a business can achieve. And as you know, I'm a bit of a broken record on the issue, but from a cold chain federation perspective and how our industry is perceived and how it's going to be regulated over the years to come, the way in which you control that aspect of what you do is increasingly important. So I guess my question is, can that sort of collaborative model with your partners and that focus on continuous improvement deliver results in that area as well? Yeah, for sure. I, I, and I think um, uh, sustainability uh, and th this approach um, to improving the environment um, is, is all of our duty, Shane, both personally and in business. 
uh, and we should do what we can to act in the most sustainable way. We need to protect the environment for future generations. So I don't think, well, certainly recently, I've not heard anybody saying it's hogwash, don't worry about it, everything will be in the right in the end. It's just nature's cycle. I think we all know there's things that we can do um, to improve the environment. I think look, I, I've, I've touched already on the design of the warehouse and modern equipment and materials that we can use in warehouses now. And our warehouse is certainly some of, if not the most energy efficient in the world. But there are reasons that it can bring challenges. Um, and uh, there is another dictionary term for the word sustainable, which is able to continue over a period of time, in inverted commas. And our solutions have to be sustainable under both definitions. Um, I think uh, as a federation, uh, we, we negotiated um, a climate change agreement, which uh, was an agreement with government that enabled cold stores, temperature controlled logistics suppliers to work on sustainable solutions that had a huge impact on emissions. Now, off the top of my head, chain, and I didn't research it before, so you might need to fill in the blank. I'm not sure how much we've reduced emissions over that period of time. I'm not sure how much carbon we've saved. But the fact is, the fact that it was a sustainable gave businesses an opportunity to look at sustainable solutions uh, that came from a sustainable model, using both terms sustainable, was really beneficial. And I, I think everybody needs to remember that. So from a business point of view, we all want to do the right thing. But the reality is we can't always afford to do the right thing tomorrow. Um, Thanks, John, for referencing the climate change agreement, which uh, we run as a federation. Our target in that was to improve energy efficiency within our cold storage facilities by 12%. Um, so energy used per kilowatt hours per meters cubed, um, improve that energy efficiency by 12% over 10 years up to the end of 2020. We've actually achieved, we're on track to achieve more than 16%. So we use, we're freezing more product than we ever have, and we're doing it using less energy. And that really shows that kind of path of improvement and sustainability um, in the sector. Yeah, and, and I think, so, so uh, uh, for the last year or so, we've been looking at uh, different types of technology to try and particularly focus on the use of diesel in the refrigerant units on our trailers. So. We're just about to undertake a trial um, with a potential solution. Um, but the reality is I can't go out and buy a hundred of those units, even if the three month trial goes really well. I can't go out and buy a hundred of those units tomorrow. You know, it's about it's about because that's not sustainable from a business point of view. So sometimes we just need some help to find ways to get a sustainable way to a sustainable solution. Um, and uh, I, like I say, I think the CCA is a great example of that. Um, but, and we try, we really try to be sustainable, but it isn't always easy. You win the award for using the word sustainable more than anybody else, John. Yeah, I just think it shows your commitment to it. That's fine. 
I want to move on to ask you a bit more about yourself because you're not a cold chain lifer, are you? You've got a bit of a varied uh, logistics background. Yeah, it's uh, so uh, I came into cold chain absolutely by accident. Um, in fact, I didn't even know it was cold chain. Shane, cold chain, Shane. Yeah, I didn't even know it was cold chain as such. I just knew uh, I'd worked in a business for 20 years uh, where I'd ended up as a regional director. Uh, the company uh, went into administration and got taken over, but I was very quickly out of work uh, back in 2009 for the first time ever. Um, and as the months, weeks, let's say, ticked on, um, it became clear I probably wasn't going to get a job in my field, which was in newspaper and magazines. It's quite a diminishing and restrictive market. Uh, and by chance, um, I applied for a job at Partner Logistics in Gloucester um, in what I knew was a frozen warehouse because I did some research um, and uh, ended up with the job as site manager in Gloucester. Um, and I say really more by luck than judgment. Uh, in the end, um, they hired me because I had some almost account management experience and they had a really big customer on the site. Uh, that they wanted somebody to be able to work with. So that's how I fell in uh, to Cold Chain, like I say, 11 years ago. Uh, I, that was at Park Logistics. I had a break in between uh, where I went to work for Bibby Distribution, um, another 3PL, but in ambient uh, packaging and uh, for a year or so. Uh, and then when New Cold announced they were going to open in the UK, uh, I was approached to ask to join those guys. So, um, yeah, so that's how I really um, got into the industry. So, and obviously you've been instrumental in the building up of the UK uh, business of Newcold. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was your experience of setting up the Wakefield sites. And I know you're about to embark on a new project. And I think one thing that you had to do was uh, make quite a significant change to the way you did transport very early on in in your project. Can you just tell us um, what happened there and what you learned from it? Oh, yeah, uh, a lot um, I've learned, Shane. Uh, yeah, so it, it was an interesting situation. We're, we took a long-term contract for transport and warehousing. Our strategy was always to get into transport at a point uh, or probably to get into transport at a point, but we wanted to get the warehouse settled down first. So we did a back-to-back -back transport contract with another 3PL. Um, unfortunately, after a few weeks and our, our first formal KPI meeting um, and top-to-top -to -top meeting uh, to see how we were getting on, uh, the transport provider told us that they couldn't afford to do a better service for the rate that was agreed. Um, we said, but you've agreed, and they said, yes, I know it's very disappointing, <laughs> um, So, but if you... Uh, you'll just have to go through the steps in the contract. And there were steps. There were steps to remove them as a provider. Um, but like in a lot of contracts, it was going to take six months and cause a lot of pain to uh, particularly our customer uh, that we just signed a 15-year contract with. So we, in simple terms, we decided uh, to end and start a transport operation. Um, uh, and within eight weeks of that decision, we were doing the outbound deliveries out of Wakefield. Um, since then, yeah, transport has grown with the warehouse. So 
uh, warehouse is 150% bigger than it was uh, when we started. And transport's actually probably even more than that. Um, and I've learned a lot, actually. Um, I've had involvement with transport in the past, um, but I've been closer and starting it from scratch um, was actually really difficult. Um, I had a lot of help along the way. Um, so a uh, big shout out to Tom Cassells, um, who's given me a lot of help uh, in the transport arena um, with his years of experience. Um, so I, I think he has, in generally has been a big help, but it has been really tough, Shane, I have to say, and uh, it is continues to be really tough. Um, we've spent probably the reality the last four years uh, get into a position where we've got enough volume um, and a good team. And we, in all seriousness, the last, I would say in 2020, we've probably at the level we wanted to be at in 2016, 2017. Um, just lots of marginal gains. Um, everyone knows about driver shortages, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but transport can be a difficult place to be. Yeah. And I guess the uh, increase or the, the doubling of your capacity by opening up a facility warehouse at Corby will have knock-on benefits for your transport operation as well. Yeah, uh, for certain. Uh, and look, the, the reality is one of the upsides we see in the transport operation in Corby is we can reduce our empty running and reduce food miles. So um, the idea of a site in Wake from the site of Corby is great from a warehouse point of view. Um, in their own right, they, they, will, they will stand and fall. Um, but from a transport perspective, it gives us a bit more of a network, I say, enables us to reduce food miles and empty running. So um, from that perspective, should be a really good thing for us as a business. Brilliant. Um, thanks, John. I've got one final question for you. Um, it relates to the Federation. You're obviously a member of the Cold Chain Federation board. Um, and I'm very conscious that I'm an employee of the Federation. It's my job to be involved in activities and to engage with the wider industry. Um, but for the rest of the board members and like yourself, you're all volunteers and um, you're one of the people that does spend uh, a bit of your time um, engaging with our activities and engaging with the wider industry. Um, why do you carve out the time to do that? Yeah, I, I think it, it's a good question, actually. I, I think that the there's a personal reason, I guess, for me, and there's a professional reason. So I, I told you, I fell into cold chain logistics uh, almost by mistake. Um, and I didn't even really know at that point, if I'm honest, that cold chain was a thing. Um, Nor did I. And that, there was a fe- <laughs> and, and that there was a federation. So, um, but when I came in um, to, the, to, to the industry, I got a lot of guidance and help and offers of support uh, not only from the Federation, but from some of the other members that I came across um, uh, and associates. And I, I just felt quite welcomed into the industry. So that, that that's a bit of a personal reason, I guess. Professionally, uh, things change all the time in our world, in your world, change, in everybody's world. Legislations change, rules change, health and safety guidance changes. And for us, the, the Federation, the Coltrane Federation, is our one point of contact. It is something specific for our industry that looks out for our industry. It isn't a generic warehousing or transport 
federation it's specific to cold chain so things that we are interested in the federation helps us understand and learn about um, and i say we we could belong to lots of different federations there are lots like say for warehouse and transporting um, but the ccf has been structured and built for businesses like mine it's tailored to support businesses like mine um, so I think that's the professional thing. Look, the, the other thing which, which I underestimated, Shane, if I'm honest, when I when I started to get a bit more involved in my late in my time at Partner, um, the thing I underestimated was the ability for the federation to get our voice heard at senior levels. Um, and I have to say that that's only I I think has only increased. In, in the last couple of years, and certainly in recent years, that our voice can be heard in government. So if we've got thoughts about red diesel charges or climate change levies or whatever it may be, um, the Federation is our way of getting our opinion heard in government. And, and I think I underestimated that early on, but I've actually been really impressed um, at how the Federation manages to to do that. So the credit to you and the team, it's really, really beneficial to us as a business. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. John, thank you so much for your time today and being so open about what's going on in your business and the exciting times ahead for Newcold. Um, so that's the end of our podcast. Thank you once again for listening. Hopefully you're still enjoying the content that we're bringing you. We're in our 10th episode now. Um, you can really help us out by subscribing to the podcast, by leaving us a review on your favourite podcast app and helping us to, uh, helping others to find, to find us. Um, as ever, I hope you're keeping safe and well and I look forward to speaking to you next time. <laughs>